Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. We are in a series, uh, as you heard, on uh, friendship. Friendship. And uh, you may be asking today, friendship, is that even in the Bible? Why would we talk about friendship in the church? Well, the reason why we talk about friendship is because we need it. I think we need it. It's, it's a deep part of who we are as human beings. Relationship. Right? So, so we need it. It's very easy to remain anonymous in a large church like this. So sometimes it feels like you can't get it here. And we want to make it as hard as possible to be anonymous. And I think our culture's cards are stacked against us when it comes to building healthy relationships. It's almost as if our culture is wired to be anti-relationship. So sometimes we just need a nudge towards friendship. Now, I brought this up last week. I want to hit on this again. Um, Let's see here. Where's my toolbar? That's over here. Is it over here? There it is. Okay. So um, we are living at the overlap. I like green better. Do you guys like, what color do you guys like? I like the green. Yeah, I'm feeling the green. No, we're not doing purple. All right. Um, So we're living at the overlap here of like four realities. Okay. Um, The first one is, is crazy busyness. And all of us feel this pressure in my life. How in the world am I supposed to have any friends when, hey, I can't really get together until three Fridays from now. I've got a 45-minute window after work before soccer practice for coffee if you can do that. Can you do that? Oh, you can't do that? Well, let's just aim for 2024, right? That's the vibe. Then we also live in a culture that is, um, that's a B. That has great amount of, of mobility, the earth is flat now. I don't know if you've noticed. You can just kind of get anywhere you want. And how in the world am I supposed to make any friends at all if people are constantly leaving for a new neighborhood or a new job or a new church or a new city or a new fill in the blank? It feels like you know them and then they're gone. Third reality is, um, is tech. Just deteriorates our relationships. It really it thins them out. We end up having shallow relationships. How in the world am I supposed to have any friends when uh, I spend more time face to screen than I do face to face? Oh, are we on an elevator together? Hi, screen. Oh, are we standing in the grocery line? Screen. Oh, are we actually having dinner together right now? Screen. Are we at a red light next to each other? Screen. Am I driving on the road? Supposed to be mindful of you on the other side of the road so I don't swerve and hit you. Okay, let's just risk it. Screen. Okay, you want to know my personal opinion is on tech? This is just my personal opinion. I don't know if you found this. But um, I have found that my social media friends are just way cooler than all the losers I know in real life anyways. Right? Because they're like super funny and smart and artistic. They post like, poetry quotes with a picture of a plant and I would have never thought to do that it's amazing they're always doing like 
cool things with beautiful people at bougie restaurants with a selfie stick in their purse. It's just, they're super authentic, super authentic. So there's that. And then um, the last one is this. We live in a culture that's just saturated with polarization. How in the world am I supposed to have any friends when there are so many good reasons to hate you? And hate you, I do. Because, you know, there's the good guys, you know, the Republicans. And then there's those anti-American socialists. Own the libs. It's in the Bible, I think. No, I got that wrong. There's the good guys, the Democrats. And then there's those, uh, those bigoted, anti-immigrant losers with the red hats that are really ugly. I got that right, right? This, we all kind of giggle, we all kind of chuckle, we all kind of laugh <laughs> nervously because you know it's true. It's not actually true of your friend who leans right or your friend who leans left. That's the caricature that we choose to believe and then we hate each other. Now add on top of these realities, the fact that people still leave their grocery carts out in the parking lot at Kroger, which should be punishable with jail time. <laughs> Praise for the Christians over here. I'm telling you, I'm that guy, you leave your grocery cart in the, in the lot while I'm pulling out, I'll stop the car, get out and be like, no, it's, it's okay, I got it. I have 15 seconds to spare, love the Ville. You know, like, <laughs> I will. Um, so you got those people, then you've got people who ride bikes on the main roads during rush hour, don't mind the 700 cars behind you. Um, and also you have adults wearing Crocs again. I mean, it's okay for young people because that's when you make all of your mistakes in life, but, but you're not 16. All right, now, I don't even know where I'm at. Busyness, mobility, technology, polarization, and Crocs. This is, this is why, this is where we live, this is why we can't have friends. Like, honestly, this is the real dilemma in front of us. I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a loneliness epidemic. Seriously. As you know that in 2018, uh, the UK actually appointed a minister for loneliness. And I know some people are like, well, that's kind of weird. And you can have your opinion on it, but they're just acknowledging the statistical realities and how dangerous loneliness is for people. Did you know that in 2017, the current US uh, Surgeon General uh, actually wrote an article, this is, his, I think this is his most well-circulated article online, about how to combat loneliness in the workplace. And by the way, that's in 2017, the you know, Minister of Loneliness is in 2018. Um, that was all before the isolation of COVID. Things have gotten worse. Did you know that statistically, uh, we are seeing that Generation Z is one of the lonely, it is, it is the loneliest generation in modern American history, according to the numbers. But the good news is I'm, I'm getting to know some of these people, our kids. And what I've seen is there's some futurists among them. There's some thought leaders among them who actually believe, no, I'm gonna resist. I don't need to bring a TikTok camera kit with me everywhere that I can actually connect and be here with my friends. But the point is we need friendship. Friendship cures 
loneliness, but it isn't just the cure for what ails us. It's the key to human flourishing. You can't flourish as a human being without others because you can't love without others. And that's what God designed us for. John 15, verse 11, our king, Jesus, said it like this. Um, He said, I've said these things to you, he's talking to to his disciples, so that my uh, joy may be in you and that your joy uh, may be complete. I would love to have the complete joy of Jesus in my heart, Jesus. So what things are you talking about? Well, uh, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. So what's the key to the joy of Christ? Well, love God, and his love language is obedience, and love others. Wouldn't you know it? We're relational beings. Now, uh, last week we looked at uh, an epic friendship. Week one of the series, if you weren't here, Belinda did a great job framing up on really practical terms what a biblical relationship or a biblical friendship looks like. And then uh, my three weeks after this, we're just going to be looking at Bible friendships and just seeing what we can squeeze out of them. No agenda other than just look at the text, see what we can squeeze out of the friendship. So last week uh, we looked at a pretty epic friendship. Do y'all, uh, y'all remember which one we looked at? Anybody? Yeah, so David and Jonathan, and it was epic, right? This week we're going to look at a different friendship. We're going to look at the friendship between uh, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. And uh, this is an interesting one. Um, Some bumps along the way that will be really fun to to sort of investigate. But to set the historical scene for this, we actually have to move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? Because Paul and Barnabas were heroes. They were leaders of the early church. Now, let me frame this up for you uh, with a little bit of a timeline, just so you can kind of, oh boy. All right, hold on, hold on. This to us, this did this to us last service. <laughs> Who just said try purple? Because this ain't the Catholic church, but I'm about to excommunicate you. <laughs> Raise your hand, all right. We're just going to go old school, all right? So, uh, timeline. Around the year, you know, we won't get to see it, but you can just hear it, all right? Or write it down in your notes. Around the year 6 to 4 B.C., uh, Jesus was born, okay? And some of you are like, 6 to 4 B.C., Jesus was born four years before Christ? Tell me how that works, right? Well, long story short, uh, there was a monk named Dennis the Dwarf, in the sixth century, who came up with the dating system and he missed Jesus' birth just by a little bit. So we've got a Jesus being born five years BC, right? Now, he's born about then, and then his ministry starts about around AD 27. These are approximations, but it's around AD 27. Now, it's about three years later, AD 30, where Jesus is crucified, he rises from the dead, and then you gotta fast forward about four years from that, AD 34. For when Paul gets converted as a Christian. So Paul gets converted pretty early on in the game. But he wasn't a follower of Jesus during his ministry, as we'll see. Now, after Paul gets converted, A.D. 34, fast forward about three more years from there. It's in A.D. 37-ish when Paul and Barnabas meet. And for the next 14 years or so, they have a really good run at it. BFFs 
All right, they're dear BFFAAs because they are tight and they do life together. But as we'll see later, there was a reason for them to separate in the year 51. And then it was around the year 60 when Barnabas is martyred. He was martyred by stoning around the year AD 60. Uh, the apostle Paul is beheaded around the year uh, AD 67. But it's important to kind of situate their lives here. All the stuff that we're looking at here today happens about AD 34 when Paul gets converted to about AD 51 when Paul and Barnabas go different ways. Now, their friendship starts under the strangest of circumstances. Fear. Barnabas wasn't afraid of Paul, no. Um, it was actually Peter, like Peter, one of the 12 disciples, that Peter. Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, who were terrified of Paul. Just flat out terrified of him. They wouldn't even let him in the same room. Now, do you, do you know why? You know why? Okay, you would think James and Peter, as the two chief leaders of the church, would have a little better judgment than this. Paul, after all, was, in my opinion, the most influential Christian leader in the history of Christianity. Quick resume for Paul here. You guys can side screen it. Uh, Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. He explains core doctrines like justification, sanctification, and resurrection. He does miracles. There's this one time where he does a miracle with his handkerchief. Like he's just throwing hankies. You've seen that on TV, right? Like he's doing it for real. Um, uh, he plants approximately uh, 20 churches. He suffers a lot, 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 even more lots than that. Uh, next slide here. Uh, he takes the gospel to all of Asia, Acts 19.10 tells us. He leads the church in Gentile inclusion, and he preaches in amazing places like Athens and before amazing people like governors and perhaps even Caesar himself. Paul's a big deal once he gets into the leadership game, and he wants into the leadership game. So why are Peter and James, these two chief leaders who seem to have a a level of Holy Spirit power and discernment, why are they resisting him? Well, for those of you who know the story of Paul, you know that before Paul was the powerhouse Christian, he was Saul, the anti-Christian persecutor of the faith. Again, remember, this is about seven years or so after Christianity is born. Christianity is just a little baby at this point. It's growing Rapidly, but they are coming under staunch persecution. The apostles have been thrown in prison. They have been flogged. They have already lost one of their great core leaders, Stephen, to martyrdom. He was stoned in the streets. Oh, and guess who led his stoning? Hmm, wouldn't you know it? Acts 7. Verse 58, it says, the witnesses, those who are about to stone him, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's like he's the organizer. While they're stoning Stephen, uh, Stephen says things that Jesus said on the cross. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which is another sermon, by the way, but sometimes the most evangelistic thing you can do is not just live well, but die well, Right? When he had said this, though, he died, and who? Saul. Saul approved of their killing him. Now, you see, like us, 
Saul has a past. He has some unsavory parts of his story, especially before he met Jesus. This is a moment that later he was not proud of. Let me give you the resume of Saul, the persecutor, real quick. Um, First, uh, Saul the persecutor, you should know, is educated as a Pharisee. Which is not a bad thing, by the way. The Pharisees were kind of heroes. They were the teachers of Scripture, if you will, uh, to the common folk back then. People liked Pharisees. It was just that some people take Pharisee, or uh, some Pharisees took the law just a little bit too seriously. Okay, they would do this thing called fencing the law. You've heard of this before? Basically, they would take a law, a good law of God from the, from the Hebrew Scriptures, and then to make sure they didn't break it, they would put a law around that law. And then to make sure they didn't break the law around the law, they'd put another law around the law around the law, and so on and so forth. Okay, you know what this is like because uh, when you were a kid, your mommy wouldn't let you say, oh my God, would she? In fact, you couldn't even say that. You couldn't say, oh my gosh, oh my gah, oh my golly. You couldn't even write OMG because she'd be like, what's the G stand for? Goodness, mom, oh my goodness, right? That's how it worked. Okay, maybe this didn't connect with some of you, all right? Um, how about this one? This one called Connect in Louisville. Um, ha. Do, you, uh, do you know why Baptists don't let their teenagers sleep together before marriage? Because it might lead to dancing, all right? And that's it. That is what fencing the law. So for some of you, but for others of you, you grew up in a home just like that. That's what fencing the law is like. And that's what some of the Pharisees uh, were, were guilty of, right? Saul was educated as a Pharisee. Because of that, he hated Christianity. Christianity had a law of love rather than a love of law. And they were saying this Jesus guy was God, and that really bothered him. He lived as a zealot. Although he was trained by Gamaliel, who was the pacifist branch of Pharisaism during the time, he acted like a disciple of Shammai, who was the zealot branch. And so you see him persecuting the way. He gets endorsements from the high priests. He starts traveling around, throwing Christians into prison. He even stones one of the early Christian church leaders, Stephen. His persecution goes on for at least a year. Well, until until something miraculous happens to him on his way to Damascus. He meets Jesus, the risen Jesus. He has a radical encounter with God's grace. And from that moment forward, the world is changed forever. Now, it's at this point, by the way, where Barnabas and Paul meet. The scriptures tell us that after he is converted on Damascus Road, uh, Saul goes and preaches in Damascus for a little bit, gets run out of there, um, and, uh, and then he goes into the deserts of Arabia for three years, just sort of disappears. I think he was rethinking his theology. He had to figure out, what, who is this Jesus and how does this work in the Hebrew Scriptures? And he did. And he reemerges back on the scene three years later. So again, just put yourself in Peter and James' shoes for a second. You can understand why they're a little hesitant. Okay? We remember. Peter's like, come on, dude. We remember what you did. Just because you show up three years later, sure, we heard the rumor of your conversion, but now you're here like with a sunburn, a beard, and a WWJD bracelet, and you expect us just to forget what you did. We remember what you did to Stephen. 
I did his ordination in Acts 6 and then his funeral after Acts 7. We remember. And that's where it was with Paul and the leadership until Barnabas steps in. Barnabas. Now, quick resume for Barnabas. Barnabas is not one of the 12 apostles, but he is an apostle, according to Acts chapter 14, verse 14. His son means something like son of encouragement, or, uh, or excuse me, his name means something like son of encouragement or son of exhortation. Uh, scholars debate how to translate the Greek. I think he was probably both. Okay, he was fantastic at encouraging. Hey, God loves you. I see this in you. Keep it up. Probably good at exhorting too. Hey, I also see this in you. You need to get back on the straight. You need to repent, you know. God, God doesn't, doesn't want you heading that direction. Um, he was a Levite. Interesting, you know what a Levite was? A Levite served alongside the priests in the temple. So he was trained in, um, in temple stuff, right? Um, and this is a perhaps, this is one of three perhapses for Barnabas um, based on early church history. But he was perhaps one of the 70 that was sent out by Jesus in Luke 10. Perhaps. The reason why I say that it's not in the Bible, but Eusebius actually writes in his church history that Clement of Alexandria, who was a second century church leader, vouches that Barnabas was one of the 70. Interesting. If that's true, that means he has a track record with Jesus. We know from Acts that he was wealthy and generous because he had a plot of land. He sold it, gave it to the church in order to care for one another and the poor. We also know he's a great leader, as we'll see play out in his leadership with Paul. Here's the other two perhapses. We also hear from early church history that he is perhaps the author of both Hebrews and the epistle of Barnabas. Now, I don't think he's the author of Hebrews or the epistle of Barnabas personally, but you can see why Tertullian, great third century theologian, would think that he might've wrote Hebrews because Hebrews is all about the temple and all about priests and all about how we find Jesus in that. And again, Barnabas was a what? A Levite. Makes sense to me. The Epistle of Barnabas, so this is an interesting one. You should go Google it later. It's good Christian reading. Um, it was a letter that was written in the mid-2nd century, uh, but uh, it was regarded very highly by early church fathers. Some of them, like Origen and Clement, believed that it should be in the Bible. It wasn't in the Bible because it wasn't written by an apostle. It was written in the mid-hundreds. They were already dead by then. The ones that make it in the New Testament are either written by an apostle or by a close associate of the apostle, Right? But you can see somebody stamped uh, Barnabas' name on this epistle in order to give it more power and authority. That's how big of a deal this guy was. Now, not only did he do all of these things that we just went through, but I believe that the greatest thing Barnabas did, the most important thing Barnabas did is what we're gonna see next. Barnabas chose to be Paul's friend. He chose it. And this is the only reason, by the way, the only reason that he gets FaceTime with Peter and James, that he gets a shot to lead, and that Paul eventually takes the gospel to the non-Jewish world, which would be us, by the way. We are spiritual children of the ministry of Paul. Because Barnabas believed in him. Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says, when Paul had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. That was a turning point for Paul's leadership. Barnabas took him. Come with me, man. He brought him to the apostles. 
And he described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was like, James, are you kidding me? James, was it not you who called your brother crazy throughout his entire ministry and it took him rising from the dead before you believed in him? Andrew, John, Thomas, are you kidding me? Was it not you who in Gethsemane ran off when the soldiers rolled up? Jesus needed you the most in that moment. I thought you were ready to die for him. Oh, and Peter, hmm, Peter. Was it not you who denied him three times, once trembling before a middle school girl? And yet the risen Jesus gave you a second chance and apparently he's given Saul a second chance too. The question is, will you? Will you? Now, I'm not sure, by the way, the exact argument that Barnabas made. That's the one I would have made. But whatever it was, it worked. They let him in. And Saul immediately proves he was a real one. Acts 9, 28, it says, Saul stayed with the apostles, went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with uh, some Greek-speaking Jews. They tried to murder him. This will be a pattern in Paul's life, if you read about Paul. Um, and when the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast, and sent him away to Tarsus, uh, which is his, his hometown. Now, I want you to notice here, after uh, Barnabas and, and Saul initially meet and they get Barnabas into the circle, or uh, Saul into the circle, he's preaching so boldly uh, that his life is now in threat. Isn't that ironic? A few years ago, they were worried about their safety around him. Now they're worried about his safety around them. You know, like it's just funny how things flip in the kingdom. And so they're like, Saul, you're a valuable teacher here. We see this. We need to get you out of here, though, before they kill you. So they sent him to Tarsus, which is his hometown. Can you uh, throw the map up on the screen? I want you all to see. You see Jerusalem down there at the bottom? Look at the very top middle. That's where Tarsus is. That's where Saul was from. That's where they sent him. Cyprus, by the way, that island in the Mediterranean, on the left side of the screen, that's where Barnabas was from. And I picked this map because of the other two cities that it highlights. See, okay, when Saul was sent to Tarsus, uh, leave the map up there for a second, Barnabas stayed in Jerusalem and the church started to explode. It exploded in the most unlikely places like Damascus, which is where who lived? That's about where the Samaritans were. And it also exploded in this town up there in the north called Antioch, Antioch of Syria. It gets its own chapters in Acts. Now, the reason why everybody was very excited about the church in Antioch was because, well, one, it was exploding quickly. Two, it was one of the most, the third most important city, I believe, in the Roman Empire. So it's a big city. It's a big deal. Three, the church was wealthy. And four, it was incredibly multi-ethnic. Jews and Gentiles were coming together. So when this happened, the disciples were like, we got to send one of our best guys up there to shepherd this church. Who are we going to send? Who are we going to send? Hmm. Barnabas. we got to send Barnabas. And they send Barnabas north to lead this church. Now, when Barnabas heads north, it doesn't take him long to realize he needs some help. So guess who he brings to help him? Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, it's worth pausing here for a second real quick and noting these two key events. Uh, You can go to the next slide here. That honestly gave birth to their relationship. First, Barnabas welcomes Paul despite his past. And second, Barnabas invites Paul 
to lead with him. Basically, Barnabas chooses Paul. He chooses Paul. Now, uh, philosophers uh, suggest that what makes the love of friends so unique and special is that it's the only love that's, well, chosen, deliberately chosen. If you think about it, family love, well, you don't choose that. You're just kind of given your family. Sorry about that. Um, oh, and, and romantic love, marital love. Well, in many cultures, that's not chosen at all. But even in our culture, we have this idea that you fall into love, right? There's this sort of magnetism that draws you in. But friend love, well, what makes it so unique is that it's deliberate. What makes it so life-giving is that you see someone and they see you and we choose each other. I choose to let you in. You choose to do the same with me. Now, I want to say something that, that's, that's hard today. And I only say it because I'm your pastor and I love you and because I'm the worst at this myself. But this is what I have found. I have found that in almost every situation, key friendship truth number one here from Paul and Barnabas, in almost every situation, if you don't have deep friendships, it's because you've chosen that. Because there are people in your orbit, there are people in this church, there are people in your life who would have you as a friend. But the only way that happens is if you choose it. It's not natural. It's not magnetic like romance. It's chosen. You have to choose to make the time. You have to choose to invest. You have to choose to forgive when they let you down. Choose to continue to show up. Choose to love. Choose to forgive and again when they let you down a second time. You've got to choose to continue to go back. Now, after the initial bromance period here with Paul and Barnabas, they actually have three pretty big bonding moments that we see in Scripture that come next. Bonding moment number one is in Acts eleven twenty six, where they do basically about a year of life together in Antioch leading the church. Uh, I mean, they're working together. They're probably living together. Saul's single, right? He's, he's a single guy. Barnabas is probably single too. So they're, they're depending on one another and doing the Lord's work. That'll bond you, doing daily life together. Second big bonding moment was a road trip. They went on a road trip together. Ain't nothing will bond you to somebody like being on the road for a few days with them, right? See, this famine hit Jerusalem. Jerusalem needed aid from the other Christians, and the Antioch church was wealthy, so they collected an offering, and Barnabas and Paul took it south, dropped it off. Now, the third big bonding moment, and this is the one we're going to key on here, is um, they had their first big friend fight. This one happens in Galatians chapter 2, and it was a pretty big one, big enough to make the Bible. Now, um, okay, so let me give you the situation that kind of this, the fight kind of grows out of. In the early church, the number one issue that church planners, church leaders had was getting Jews and Gentiles to eat and worship together. It was their biggest issue. The reason why is because the Jews still had an old covenant mindset, even the Jewish Christians. So they kind of looked at Gentiles as unclean, second-class citizens. Sure, they accepted Jesus, but they weren't circumcised. They didn't follow the law of Moses. So, uh, you know, they were iffy on them. And the Gentiles picked that up. Now, Paul and Barnabas are over here like, no, it's, it's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus the law of Moses. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's, 
That's the gospel, right? They couldn't wrap their minds around it. So the Jewish Christians had this sort of prejudice that's still in there that needed to get scooped and deprogrammed out, and, and the Gentiles resented it. Now, the cool thing about Antioch, though, was that Antioch was this paragon, this exemplar of Christian unity until Galatians chapter 2. This happens. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul said, I know this, we're talking about Peter and Paul here, not Barnabas yet. So when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was wrong. When he arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers at first who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, oh no, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, uh, what do you think uh, Paul did in this moment? Galatians tells us, you can read on um, later for yourself. Uh, Paul said it off. He said, he looks at Peter, he's like, are you kidding? Jewish table, Gentile, Peter. Okay, Peter, tell me that story about Cornelius again, please. One more time for everyone to hear. Barnabas, you, you baptized these people sitting over here. Are you kidding? We are one family of God. We have the blood, okay, the blood of Jesus that unites us, which is even stronger than the blood running in your veins. We can't eat together. Now, this is the second big theme we learn about friendships. Great Christian friendships. Second, friends who share that eternal bond in Christ can speak the truth. They will speak the truth. And they'll do it without fear of separation. That's what Paul does here. I think that's what Paul's after actually later in Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself, Barnabas. This is the first example of a subtweet right here in the Bible, okay? Now, if you've been around here long, you know that I talk about this a lot. You need that last 10% friend. You need some last 10% friends. We all uh, have like first 90% friends. It's actually pretty easy to be that. You're probably the, good at being a first 90% friend for someone else. The first 90% friend is the friend um, who will love you, who will be there for you in hard times, who will like see the good in you and lift you up and empower and encourage you. It's nice to have a friend like that, right? But that last 10% friend will do all the first 90 and they'll also speak the truth in love when you need to hear it. They're not afraid to risk the relationship in order to say what needs to be said. They will not enable you because they know that if they do enable you, you will go down a path that you should not go. They love you too much. They love your future too much. They want to see you flourish. And so they'll grab you by the shoulders and they'll say, knock it off. Quit, quit the gossip. Quit. You, you look like a crazy person on social media right now, all right? If you, if you keep making those life choices, we know where that path ends and I'm not going to let you do it. 
I'll go and tell you, if you have that sort of friend, don't push back, don't hate on it. Don't call them mean or victimize yourself to them. You know, they're treated, they were so mean to me. Cherish it, cherish that friend because it's a gift from God. And then return the favor because they'll need it too. Truth and love. Truth in love. That's the key here. Love without truth isn't love at all, is it? It's enablement. Truth without love will never be heard because you're a jerk. So we have to find a way to embody both. A good word for this in a relationship is substance. You have a relationship of substance where you're just willing with your friend to brave the depths of conversation, no matter where it takes you. You don't always just talk about sports or gossip and all the other trivial things out there. That's what we talk about, right? Like that's, that's what you talk about in your shallow relationships. Those are the starter conversations and you rarely get past them. It's sports. Hey, what are you doing for the game tonight? Who's going to win? Dude? You know, you don't even know about sports, right? Like you don't even know about the teams playing tonight. You heard something on sport talk radio, but it's just like, what do you think about Jalen? You know, it's, it, those guys are great at this. Guys are great at not braving the depths of conversation and just talking about sports. Then of course there's gossip. I'm gonna go and tell you, if the only thing you and that friend can converse about is, is, well, is if it's at the expense of someone else always, that's not a healthy relationship. And that's often where our conversations go. Did you hear? Oh, they made me so fill in the blank. Okay, now that was their first fight. That was their first fight. Barnabas repents. That's the good news. So does Peter. Praise God. But they had one more. And this one was more intense, and this is where Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. It's the, four key, the fourth key uh, event in their friendship, and it involves another person. I call it the John Mark controversy, the John Mark controversy. See, on their first missionary trip together, they, had done, they did so well at the church of Antioch that they set up other leaders, and then Paul and Barnabas decided to go on a missionary trip and start other churches. Okay? So on their first missionary trip together to travel around, they decide to take a young man with them named John Mark. All right, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 4. Scriptures say, uh, so Barnabas and Saul went, uh, were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, sailed the island of Cyprus there in the town of Salamis. They went to Jewish synagogues, preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, these are two big dogs in the early church, Paul and Barnabas. So if John Mark's going with them, he's either really connected or he has a lot of promise. So let me give you John Mark's resume real quick because it turns out he's both, right? First, John Mark is Barnabas' cousin as we see in Colossians 4.10, so he's got the connection. And second, many early scholars and theologians believe that perhaps John Mark was the author of the Gospel of Mark. He was close to Peter. They believe that Mark was Peter's Gospel and that Mark scribed it for him. Next, if you look at Acts chapter 12, you see that Mark's house, his mom's house was a Jerusalem hideout for the disciples. Some believe it was the upper room. So yeah, John's pretty connected, right? He had promise. He had connections. Here's the problem. On the first missionary journey, he makes a huge mistake. Acts 13, 13. Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia. I'll show you this on a map in a second. Landing at the port town of Perga. And there, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
there, John Mark bailed. Show the map real quick of the first missionary journey. Um, if you look up at where Antioch was at the top of the right corner of the Mediterranean Sea, that blue arrow that swings out, that's where the missionary trip starts. They go to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas is from, and, uh, and John Mark stays with them there. Then they move off the island of Cyprus up north to Pamphylia and Perga. You see that? Okay. They get up there into, into Pamphylia, and that there, that is when John Mark decides to leave. And as you can see, they got a lot more work to do on the trip. They travel, but it's there John Mark leaves. Now, we are not sure why John Mark leaves, by the way. I can tell you what happened on Cyprus and in Pamphylia. On Cyprus, they fight a wizard. They convert a governor, pretty fun, but dangerous ministry. When they get to Pamphylia, they're preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles alike. Not sure what part of that scared John Mark off, but it did, and Paul does not forget it. Because a few years later in Acts 15, Barnabas wants to go on another missionary trip. Starting in verse 36, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. And Barnabas agreed. He wanted to take along, though, John Mark again. So how do you think Paul responded? Well, Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark was a deserter and then not continued with him in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp. Oh, no. They separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him, and he went one way, and Paul took Silas with him and went the other way. Now, could you imagine how this argument played out, by the way? Paul's like, hey, let's, let's do another trip. Let's go back to the churches, see how they're doing. Barnabas's like, great idea. And you know what? He's matured. Let's take John Mark with us and give him a second shot. Paul's like, nope. No chance, no chance, Barnabas. The work's too important. Paul, would you just give it a rest, man? I mean, it's been three or four years at this point. Like, he's shown that he's, he's legit. Just give him a second chance. And Paul's like, no, the stakes are too high. I'm not going to give him a second chance. And he's like, oh, you, you of all people are not going to give him a second chance? Saul, that's not my name. It once was your name, our situations are totally different. Yeah, you killed a guy. You can take John Mark if you want to, but I'm going this way. Fine, I'm going this way, and bye. Now, my two cents, Barnabas, by the way, is the one who is in the right on this one, I think. But it takes Paul, the hard head, a minute. And they go their separate ways for a time. But the good news is that scripture shows us that eventually they're reconciled with each other. 1 Corinthians 9, 6, we see Barnabas as a well-respected colleague of Paul. Uh, Philemon 24, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 11, Colossians 4, 10. All three places in Paul's letter, he acknowledges John Mark as a co-worker with him in the kingdom. So they reconcile, praise God, but not until a little bit of bumpy road in the way. Now, I love how human this is, don't you? They fight, they go their separate ways, they give each other the silent treatment, and then eventually their bond in Christ prevails, as it should be. Which brings us to our final key friendship truth that I would like for us to meditate over as we move into communion. It's this. The best friendships, the ones built in Christ, they endure all things and they last a lifetime and beyond. They have high moments and low moments. 
There are times when you fight for each other and times when you fight against each other. There are times of separation and then times of reconciliation, but unity always prevails. Because you see, as Christians, we don't cancel each other. Because the only thing about us that has been canceled is our record of wrongs by Jesus on the cross. It's in Christ that we find the humility to say we're sorry. It's in Christ that we find the patience to wait on an apology. It's in Christ that we find the courage to forgive, knowing that we've been forgiven for at least as much as they have. Hey, can I ask you a question? Who do you need to forgive? Who are you at odds with right now? Chances are, after the last three years, it's at least one of your friends. Who have you lost? For most of us, there are moments popping in our minds right now. Maybe there was a moment on the family text thread. Maybe there was a moment in the comments section on social media. Maybe it was a moment around the dinner table. Maybe it's someone who doesn't even know, but you saw them post something or heard them say something, you've just been ghosting them ever since. Is it an adult child? Is it a coworker? Is it a parent? Is it a pastor? Is it your best friend? We have experienced so much relational loss over the last few years, but it doesn't have to stay that way. It can't if we are bonded in Christ. So this is where I wanna push you today. I dare you to reconcile. I dare you to say you're sorry. I dare you to extend the olive branch. I dare you to ask God in this moment for the power to forgive. He can give it. You know, Bonhoeffer once made a point. He said, the greatest threat to Christian uh, fellowship and friendship is not a friend who sins, it's a friend who expects their friend not to sin. That's the greatest threat. So let's give up those unrealistic expectations that we put on our friends to be perfect. Let's give up the vision that your friend will never break your heart because they will. There's only one friend who won't do that, by the way, and that's the friend we have in Jesus. And in Jesus, he gives us the ability to see our friends in the light of Jesus. We see our friends through God's eyes, the way God sees you, the way God sees all of us in Christ as chosen, bearing the image of God, saved by grace, justified, sanctified, a work in progress, and in need of a good friend on this journey called life. So as we take communion today, let us meditate on this, on what the cross means for our friendships and even our broken friendships. I'll close by reading you a word of Paul. Just think about this as we take the bread and the cup. In the same letter, he later calls John Mark his co-worker in the kingdom. He gives us this advice to bring to our friendship, friendships, perhaps a piece of advice that he learned himself in his relationship with Barnabas and John Mark. Colossians 3.12, Paul says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace. Always be thankful. The word of the Lord, meditate on these words.